0: Welcome to Bookswell Intersections, a podcast devoted to connecting readers and writers in Los Angeles. Our goal is to make the book scene in LA easier to navigate, to introduce readers to new writing, and to weave together digital and real-life literary experiences. Our passion is amplifying underheard voices in publishing, including writers of color and LGBTQ, female, and indie writers. I'm your host, Cody Cisco. Welcome to Bookswell Intersections. This is episode three of the Bookswell Intersections podcast. I'm Cody Cisco, and I'm here with Sarah Labrie.
1: Hello.
0: Sarah, every time we talk, I feel like I come away with one more amazing book on my to-be-read list. So I'm hoping today you have maybe one or two that you're willing to, to share with us.
2: So as you can see, I have a stack of books next to me right now, so I don't want to forget any. But uh, one book that I don't have with me because it's in my backpack and I've just been carrying it around I love it so much is a book called baby of the family by Mara roosevelt who is the great great granddaughter of fdr i want to say don't quote me on that but it is about this sort of once very famous family that has fallen from grace and um the impact of on the heirs of this name and i went and i saw her read it romans and this book is amazing it reminds me of the corrections i love it so much and i just want to get the word out people should be reading this book
0: what else do you have?
2: Um, I got a copy of The Other Americans by Leila Leilami, who is not somebody I can say I've ever read before, but I once saw her in conversation with Dean Alman at the LA Public Library, and um, she just seemed really smart and like a really good reader. So I'm excited to start this book, which has at its center the death of... Um, a father and sort of everyone who saw the car accident that killed him and and they all sort of slowly start to try and solve the mystery so it just sounds really intriguing.
0: Yeah she's got three events coming up from today. Uh, By the time this airs I'm not sure one might have passed but um, people can go on the Bookswell website and check out the schedule of her events um, because we did a feature on her because uh, she's pretty amazing and um, yeah at least two of her books are now on my to-be-read pile so adding one at a time. (laughs)
2: Um, what else? Oh, a fun book that I'm doing right now for my recreational book club that I just do with my friends. is called Daisy Jones and the Six. It's by Taylor Jenkins Reid. Um, it's about this band in the 70s. It's like an oral history and it just seems fluffy and fun and reese witherspoon is making it into some kind of series for whatever that's worth Uh. um but apparently you know i've read taylor jenkins read before she's definitely on the lighter more commercial side but at the same time she takes on these really interesting sort of big sci-fi ideas or big premises and this looks like historical fiction so i'm just really excited to see what she does um with this subject
0: that's great. I had seen this pop up in a bunch of different places, and I wasn't sure why. I didn't understand, like, you know, what the big deal was. But now that you talked about it, I get it. Like, yes, it sounds like a great concept. It sounds like there's going to be whatever Reese Witherspoon's does, like her magic touch. <laughs> so, um, well, now, now I'm interested. Before I was gonna pass, but uh, I'm not sure I can now.
2: Yeah, well, you can borrow my copy um what about you what are you excited about
0: well i just so i just finished reading some hell and interviewed the author patrick nathan so that's gonna air uh, on this episode a a long interview with him which was fantastic we talked about um growing up gay in the midwest in the 90s and um like how artists show up today on social media and um what else, like depression? So all sorts of fun topics. Um, and yeah, that was, that was a great conversation. Um, I got my copy of Marlon James's Black Leopard, Red Wolf. I, that was a big outlay. <laughs> that was a chunk of change. It's a large book, but I'm really looking forward to it. And um, I know he's got, like, um, I think he's got a couple events coming up, so I'm trying to, like, rush through. Um, in particular, before the last bookstore Afrofuturism book club event, um, where, I mean, I think it'll be a lot of fun to be able to, to talk about that with other people. Oh, wow. So that's, that's, you know, and then who knows what else I'll pick up sometime soon. Yeah. yeah.
2: Any other events you're looking forward to?
0: I'm headed tomorrow to the AWP conference in Portland. So that'll be, you know, three or four days of tons of authors and publishers coming together. I'm hoping to, to meet a bunch of people, talk to them, maybe interview them. Um, And then, of course, the Festival of Books is coming up mid-April, and so that is, that's a big deal. I love that. It's my favorite event of the year, so um, I still have to make some plans for that. But the the Made in L.A. authors will be there uh, with our new uh, second annual Anthology of Fiction, All Stories Set in L.A., so that's going to be exciting.
2: Oh, yeah. I always get a little bit overwhelmed at the Festival of Books. I'm trying to get to all of my events and running into people, but it's it's overwhelmed in a good way. It's, yeah, it's a nice feeling.
0: There's so much there, um, and I I hope to be able to like direct some people, like hey check this out or check that out, and kind of narrow it down because it is there's so many options, it's a bit overwhelming.
2: Yeah, and talk about overwhelming AWP. I hear, um, gets more overwhelming every year, so.
0: Taking deep breaths.
2: <laughs> Take some champagne. Take <laughs> a <lot of> shots.
0: <laughs> That'll be good. All right, well, I'll catch up with you when I'm back, and thanks so much for coming on today.
2: Yeah, thank you. It's great to see you and to talk to you about books again.
0: Sweet. Patrick Nathan captured the praise of critics and readers alike with his heartbreaking and suspenseful debut novel, Some Hell. The book follows closeted high school teen, Colin, as he copes with the aftermath of his father's suicide. A New York Times Book Review Editor's Choice and a 2019 Lambda Literary Award finalist, Patrick's work has been hailed as all-consuming, sharp, and merciless. Though Some Hell has been dubbed a gay coming-of-age story, Patrick prefers calling the book a novel of depression, emphasizing that the characters in his world are grappling with mental health issues as much as sexual identity. I had a chance to chat with Patrick about being an LGBTQ author in the age of social media, the duality of Los Angeles and growing up queer in a small Midwestern town in Minnesota. Patrick, I am so excited to be talking to you today. Um, You came across our radar last year with the release of Some Hell and uh, we saw that you were doing an event at Book Soup, and we were like, oh wow, this sounds like a really cool um, author, uh, really fascinating debut novel. For me, it hits some of the kind of dark horror topics that I love to read about. Um, so we were really excited to, to be able to talk to you.
3: Yeah, no, I um, really appreciated that. And especially as we were approaching the BookSoup event, I re- I saw you guys doing a lot of promotion for it. So I really do appreciate that. That um, to, to, to me, it kind of just came out of nowhere. And I was like, oh, this is really nice. And yeah, so <laughs> really nice surprises.
0: We do we do a lot of that, like, just surprise, we're here. You don't know about us, but we're... <laughs> um, yeah, so tell us, how did the event go? What um, what did you take away from it?
3: It went well. I had a couple people show up that I knew and, um, you know, a couple of people that I didn't, which is always, you know, with a debut novel, a really wonderful surprise when somebody is just, you know, oh, I heard about this and I came and I'm like, oh my God, you know, a stranger. <laughs> um, but no, it went really well, uh, read with or I was in conversation with Matthew Spector, who um, I initially, well, I had met in person for the first time at the bookstore, but have been in touch with for a long time. He um, was one of the editors at the LA Review of Books a long, long, long time ago. And um, he ended up, we ended up following each other on Twitter. And then I, you know, precocious young writer. I was like, hey, I'd love to write for you even though I've never written for anybody and I have no credentials or anything like that. But I uh, pitched him a couple times and he ended up taking one of them and that was the first essay I ever published. And then, um, you know, years down the road when I have this novel coming out, he also blurbed it, uh, which was really nice from him. Like it's a really good blurb. I'm pretty happy with it. And then uh, yeah, he met me at Book Soup, and we talked about the book. And he's um, just a very astute, uh, close reader, and um, a really good person to have in your court, in terms of uh, his observations and his uh, way, his way of articulating what's going on in fiction.
0: That's great, and I loved how. Um... Uh, in some hell, you know, the, basically the final third of the novel uh, takes place in Los Angeles and seeing your perspective on it um, as this gritty place where, you know, fantasies can come true, but um, be careful what you wish for, (laughs) because some of those fantasies are pretty dark. um, I really enjoyed that part of it.
3: Yeah, no, it, it, um, more than any other American city, uh, it is Absolutely seductive. Um, you know, every time, every time I go there, I, I just kind of am like, "Why don't I live here?" It's so beautiful and it's perfect all the time. And um, you know, you might be surprised to hear this, but uh, people are actually very courteous to each other as they drive, um, which is not a thing in most of the rest of the country. Actually, uh, the traffic is nowhere near as bad, but I think as a consequence of that, people actually know how to navigate it
0: mm. um,
3: but anyway every every so every time I'm there I'm just basically like you know why don't I live here why don't I move here and it takes a couple of days to kind of remember you know a few different things about that that don't work out for me so well but uh,
2: mm.
3: no it uh, it I really do love being there and part of that is being in that dream state mm. of um you, you kind of have this this duality about you when, when you're there, at least if you're not from there, where um, it, it's almost much easier to imagine other lives there than it is anywhere else. Yeah, And, you know, part of that is, you know, the city's actual whole mythology of, you know, being what it is and being where it is and its primary industry and all that sort of thing. Um, but, and, and another part of it really is... Um, you know, my the, the the joke that I always love to tell is uh, you know, nobody actually hates LA, they're just really mad that they love it. <laughs> and part of, and part of that is uh you, you get there and you just are like, how could something be this pleasant? Mm. And it, it's almost like you you you're expecting something to be really wrong. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, yeah. It's surprising. I uh I've just been going through the process of editing a collection of stories, um, from a variety of authors that all take place in LA. And I'm always surprised by how dark the submissions are surprised in a good way, because that's kind of the fiction I like to read, but, um, I don't know if it's my network or it really is that, um, on, there's always that underside to Mm -hmm. the, the dream that people try to make, uh, here.
3: There's, and there's also, um, more so than any enormous city, um, you can hide anything mm. in plain sight. Um, in New York, y- y- you're gonna see everything because uh, it's it's just people are so close together, it's close quarters, there's not a lot of private space. Um, but in LA, you could disappear completely and nobody would know you were there, nobody would see you, nobody would find you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, uh, a lot of that is ha, has a great appeal for uh, literary imagination, because yeah. you can basically look at something um, and just imagine everything going on that you can't see.
0: right so let's talk a little bit about secrets, um, especially in in your novel um, the the cost of carrying the secret. Oh, yeah. uh, uh, for Colin, um, the main character, uh, along with his mother Diane, as another main character, the costs of their secrets seem to me a driving force in the novel. And there's so many moments where, if they could come clean with each other and just be honest with each other about the ex- what they're dealing with, oh yeah, um, totally. You know that that might that might save them.
3: <laughs> yeah, and that's that's you know that's a very midwestern thing too. Hmm. Uh, you know you just you just want to scream at people like i, I you both want the same thing you know <laughs> just just tell each other like what you want you know but um yeah i mean a lot of that is you know for me obviously very grounded in um being a queer person and having that uh basically affect almost every part of my personality when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, having that, you know, enormous secret to carry and how it it really ruined a lot of relationships that I had um, because I could not let it go as a secret. Growing up when I did where I did, it was very much, uh, you could not show any affection of any kind. Mm-hmm. Um, to your friends. Uh, it, it, it Nobody was out in my school. Um, so it was, it was, when I was writing it, I was kind of like, you know, it, trying to like really restrain that feeling in a sense. Hmm. Um, because obviously the book takes place much later than when I grew up. Um, but also it's, so I, I was kind of like, trying to create this world where, like, to Colin, it's very important that he keeps this secret. Mm. But even to his mother, even to Heather, uh, his sister, um, other people around him, nobody else cares, really. Yeah. To, yeah. you know, to the same extent that he does, even his mother is trying to drop hints. You know, it's okay if you you know want to tell me, yeah. That, which only makes him back further and further into a into a corner.
0: Yeah, which one is um, which led to one of those um, sort of as a as a fiction reader, one of those delicious moments where um, what she says to him to try to reassure him and make him feel that everything is okay is he takes it the complete opposite way um, right. as some as a reinforcement of the shame that he feels about his sexuality. Exactly. And, um, it's just one of those kind of all oh, dagger in the heart moments. Um,
3: right. And she does she doesn't really know how to deal with him either.
0: Yeah. And I, what I loved, um, is the way that you, you really, I, I felt, um, played with that in terms of, um, situations that can be seen from entirely different, like opposite ends of the spectrum. And I'm thinking, um, of the therapy sessions when Diane is talking to Tim, um, where, you know, she's elated to be seeing this person, her therapist, because she feels this sort of strong connection, which, you know, maybe love, maybe not. Um, but then as a result of their discussion, it entirely flips. And all of a sudden, you know, she's back in the depths of her depression and can't um, can't see a way out of it and just feels sort of defeated by
3: their interaction. Yeah. No, it's... Um... And that's, you know, another huge part of what I wanted this novel to be about, you know, it kind of got marketed as, you know, a gay coming of age novel. Um, But if you were to ask me, you know, in one word, what is your novel about, you know, aside from, you know, maybe death or something, um, I would say it's about depression. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's very much uh, what both Colin and Diane are um, spiraling in is this uh, every time they try to form a connection with somebody, there's this um, black cloud that kind of funnels up in front of them and and drives them even further into themselves. It Mm -hmm. um, is constantly showing up in between their relationships with other people. And because they're both so uh, intent on spiraling into themselves, they get closer and closer together and become almost codependent on each other Yes. in, in their mutual destruction. And um, everybody else is kind of like, I've had it with you guys. You know, I'm, I'm getting the hell out of here.
0: Yeah, all the other characters sort of fall away mm-hmm. and, and they exist almost as this, uh, you know, isolated unit. Very much so. Yeah, and I, I noticed... Um, you know there was a level or an aspect of the characters to um related to sort of a manic anxiety especially with Diane
2: mm-hmm.
0: um but but also Colin in, in the way that he per, tried to pursue his um sort of unquenched desires mm-hmm. um how you know from the depths of their depression they would try everything they would go you know the road trip for example um and the and the the sense that they were really trying to appreciate a moment of beauty but, but that was always so tenuous, um, but
3: mm-hmm. well, you, you, it's almost as if they're over-investing in the stakes of every moment and saying, you know, if I can't, yeah. if I can't do this, then it's, it's all is lost. You know, if I can't, yeah. if I can't be happy in this, what am I even doing? I think it's
0: a challenge for people who haven't experienced depression to understand that, um, that feeling that, um, if you, you know, that at any moment you could stop treading water and sink beneath the waves, mm-hmm. and, and kind of a, you know, a really mismatched understanding where, um, you know, pe- people who have suffered from depression, um, they're like, how, how come you can't see how hard it is just to get through this day?
3: Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there's, there's the, I mean, we, and we've all had that depressed friend too. You know, we've all been, right. in, we've all, I shouldn't say we've all been on both sides of it, but everybody's had the depressed friend. Mm-hmm. And it's, it always seems so simple. You know, you can just say like, all you have to do is get up and just wash the dishes, wash your clo- whatever, go out the door and, you know, talk to people, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And it seems so easy, uh, but it's not. And it's, yeah, it's, it's a large part of what I was trying to kind of capture in this, and, yeah. you know, granted their circumstances are pretty dire. Um, and they have uh, both of their, um, mental situations are kind of, uh, let's, let's say triggered, uh, by a certain event. Um, and yeah, it's a little more extreme. Obviously it's just, it's a novel. You know, so yeah. I, it's, you know, highly drama- dramatized, but at the same time, very much um, a novel of depression, which is also when people kind of um, criticize me for writing it the way I did, especially the way it ends. because hmm. um, and, I, and I told my editor this when I handed it in. I said, you know, this is going to be a very, very polarizing ending. mm mm-hmm. People are going to love it. Some people are going to hate it, and that's been very true. Um, you know. Um, so I want to ask you about so, that. So it was. Yeah. You know, so I knew I was going to be doing something polarizing, but at the same time, I sincerely believe that that is the only emotionally true way the book could have ended. Mm. And that it, it, for me, it's like yes, it's kind of fantastic. It's out there. Um, Somebody's even, you know, like, oh, it's Deus ex machina. I'm like, well, my my defense of that is, shit happens, you know. Mm -hmm. And that's that's the great lie of contemporary realist fiction is that nothing ever happens except people's choices. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot more than people. You know, the choice that we have in the world, and that that's kind of the thing that's always frustrated me is that if you put anything in there that's not a character's own doing, you're labeled as like a hack. And I'm like, well, when was the last time, you know, something happened to you that you didn't choose to happen?
0: Yeah, and yet a novel yeah. is, you know, the culmination of all the author's choices. Right. Rather so, than the characters.
3: Right, exactly. Well, I suppose there's that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to ask you about this idea of sort of living, as a, as a writer, you know, you have a public persona, you're online. Um, I've sort of seen and come across um, you on mainly Twitter, but... Um, yeah. And you know, it seems like one of those places that could drive you to extremes. Um, You know, like the flame wars on one side and just the kind of gushy praise on the other. Um, Yeah.
3: It's it's an incredibly unhealthy environment. Um, And it is absolutely, yeah, I'm just gonna say this, it's absolutely reprehensible that the contemporary publishing marketplace demands that writers be online. Right. Um, it is ultimately damaging. Mm-hmm. Um, it violates one of the core tenets of um, writing. I shouldn't say core tenets because it's not absolutely necessary, but something that generally helps writers, which is privacy and being alone. Mm. Um, distraction is Number one enemy well, the distract- distraction is the enemy of boredom, and boredom is actually the friend of creativity
0: but hmm. I wanted to ask you about the flip side of all of this, and the, the the positive energy you get from say your your writer 's community or your interactions with readers. Um, I noticed in the the acknowledgments to Some Hell that um, you thanked Marlon James for looking over the first couple pages and i 'm just wondering like where you know if If writers are this sort of um cadre of mutually supportive i mean this is a big assumption
3: <laughs> yeah. if writers
0: can be for each other a cadre of mutually supportive and intellectual and and emotionally um you know supportive uh figures how is that working out for you
3: they can uh, and you know it really it really depends um primarily you need to have one-on-one interactions, I think, um, or you know, in-person interactions, because like, social media itself doesn't really count.
0: It's so it's, performative. Well,
3: it's very performative, and you know, you're limited in your and you you're just you're just it's it's too limited. Yeah. You're limited in what you can say, how often you know, how much you can say, and yeah, you have to also, you you can't you can't really acknowledge frustrations in the same way because you might say something that somebody else will see and then it's all over. Mm-hmm. done you're canceled um so it, it's really you know more of those i i have a lot of like chats going and direct messages going with like all kinds of writers that i respect and admire and i you know i'll be at home working on something and I'm about ready to jump out of a window and i'll text them and then i'll feel better mm-hmm. um so i have a habit too of you know sending just random paragraphs of, of stuff that I'm working on to people and they're like, what is this? And I'm like, oh, I just, love that. Just, just tell me that it just tell me that it exists, you know, just, huh. I'm just, I'm just doing this to prove that I'm alive. Um,
0: so you don't, I, you don't, um, you don't hold back your work until it's ready for prime time.
3: Well, with fiction, I do more. Um, uh, for me, I, I, I always feel like a fraud when I'm writing essays. Like, I just feel like it's not something that I know how to do um, even though I yeah. am able to publish a lot more of them than I am on my short stories. But it, it it's always felt like I'm just kind of tumbling down a hill and then I get where I need to go. Hmm. Um, so with essays I can just send pieces by you know piece by piece and you know occasionally somebody's like oh, that's great, but what about this? And I'm like, oh, I didn't even think of that. So now, now I'll have to do that too. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, no, fiction, fiction is so much more stacked. And if you take something out of it, mm. it just loses so much of that magic. And I, I, you know, I think of some of like the the, the most incredible novels that exist as an aggregate. Um, and one a really good example that I always use is uh, Blood Meridian, Cormac McCarthy's novel. And if you excerpt just a sentence from that, it's terrible. It sounds stupid. It's laughable. You're like, what the hell is this? But if you read the whole thing, every single sentence in there is incredible. Um, so it's 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 kind of all about how do you make this entire thing perform? Mm-hmm. And it, it's, it's why I always have trouble when people are like, oh, show me an excerpt from your novel. And I'm like, well, how am I supposed to? Oh, and going yeah. to readings, going to readings is impossible because I'm, I'm just, I sit there and I'm like, well, I don't want to read you the opening sentences because I've had to deal with those for <laughs> 10
0: years now. You know? They get far too much attention compared to I the know. rest of it I know, and
3: also they, they don't really, I don't know, they don't do much. And I I also like to leave people with something that's more than just, you know, a feel for how the novel sounds.
0: Yeah, I mean, you don't, you don't I mean, that's, that's reading the opening lines, going around town, doing readings of the opening lines, that's really hooking.
3: Yeah, it, yeah. So it's, 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 it's I always have to struggle with like, how much do I read, where do I read? You know, where do I leave off? How much do I have to explain before I read? Yeah. Um, but it it's it that it has to do with a large part of it, is that to me it feels like it's all one piece.
0: When are you coming to LA again?
3: Um I uh might actually end up being there very soon, possibly April. Okay. Um and that's way too early or that's you know too soon to like get anything on the calendar probably but um there's
0: um there's a so there's a couple queer reading series um that you might be interested in attending one is homocentric uh Mm -hmm. that's like the third tuesday of every month um and there's another one the same night it just did a different book um and i like homocentric's been one of those places where um it's one of my favorite reading series in la so so yeah, yeah. like, let us know. There are opportunities. We'll get you plugged in.
3: Yeah, can. no, I, I definitely will. I'm um, no, I'm looking forward to going back. Um, you know, I did the book soup event. Uh, I would love to read it. Skylight. I would love to, I would love to read it you now all over the place, really. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: I think that's it. I mean, the only other one which you probably get all the time and maybe you find annoying would be like, what are you working on next?
3: oh I don't, <laughs> I don't find it annoying um i i you know i find it flattering um but also kind of terrifying uh so i'm i have a second novel that's uh hanging out in a drawer right now mm-hmm. um i'm putting together a collection of short fiction um but kind of first on deck is uh, we're gonna my agents and I are gonna take this proposal out very soon it's um, a book length essay on uh, the relationship between images politics language and ethics hmm. It's all about um, basically the 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 politics of seeing or the uh, ethics of looking and and um, you, know, you know a lot a lot of this is you know, built upon Sontag's ideas and regarding the pain of others, but also uh, Ariella Azule's um, "The Civil Contract of Photography," uh, which is great, great book. If anybody, you know, everybody has read Sontag. Well, not everybody, but you know what I mean. But uh, I, I think anybody who's read Sontag should definitely read Ariella Azule's book, where she kind of posits the idea that we don't just look at an image. We, if we, if we watch it that implies a temporal dimension and you it almost triggers an empathetic response where you think oh this person existed through the moment of this photograph and therefore they could still exist out there mm. and it's a it's almost a, a a linguistic shortcut to rather than putting an us and them between you and the photo you both see yourselves as the same us the same we mm. and a large part of what i'm trying to do in this book is Get people to understand the ethical imperative uh, behind the entire idea of politics, which is that if you eliminate anybody from it, that's um, unethical. Hmm. And You know, haha, ha, we're in a very fascistic moment right now where uh, one entire, well, I mean, this has been true for decades where one party is basing its entire identity on removing people from that mm-hmm. um, populace. Um, removing people from the voting rolls, removing people. And if, if your politics is predicated on removing people from the polis, um, that's, that's a huge problem.
0: Yeah, well, it's an interesting question around um, the ethics of paying attention to things that you might not be able to control.
3: Oh, very much so. And, you know, a huge part of this inspiration, too, is also coming from Twitter, where mm-hmm. um, I see people constantly, constantly, even smart people, especially smart people, engaging with the president of the United States <laughs> as though he cares if you point out his hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. You know, people use him as this again as a sounding board for like projecting their own um, takes, their own you know ethical stances. And I'm like, you're 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 just making him louder.
0: Mm, you're yeah. just
3: amplifying terror. And it It drives me insane.
0: Yeah. There was an interesting moment last year. Um, Darnell Moore came and did a reading at uh, the last bookstore. And uh, like one of the takeaway messages I got from him was, you know, we need to be um, careful about putting all of the... Um, the problems with our society and distilling them down to this one kind of locus. And oh, you know, we've, had, we've had problems before, we'll have problems again. And we, it almost absolves ourselves of responsibility to say, I'm not the problem or I have no role in solving the problem. It's all over there.
3: Absolutely. Uh, he is, um, he's almost good for the Republican Party because he functions as a sort of, I mean, he's their scapegoat.
0: Right? Yeah. He,
3: they can put every evil, shitty thing that they've ever believed in, which they always have, onto one character, and conveniently, once he's gone, then they can say, "Well, that's over. We're no longer that anymore." And everybody who was a total, um, totally uninvolved as a liberal, you know, this whole time, can go back to being uh, living off in their own little world. Because suddenly the the problem, which is the loud, obnoxious, offensive problem, is gone and the systems that have been there the whole time can creep back into place. So it drives me crazy when everybody's just running around saying, impeach him, impeach him. And, and, and then I'm like, and then what? Hmm. You know, there that's a great first step.
0: Yeah. It <laughs> okay, seems okay. I mean, I, I struggle a lot of this in my own writing is is trying to convey the sense that um that not looking ahead three steps is, like, the inherent um, flaw of, like, human society. Like, mm-hmm. the fact that we're always fighting current battles instead of thinking through, you know, what oh, are the yeah. long-term implications. And...
3: No, uh, I wrote a piece that appeared in um, Pacific Standard not long ago and uh, earlier this year, and it's, you know, all about the American discontinuity of history. Mm. Where we isolate history into these dramatic closed events, um this happened and then it was over, this happened and then it was over. you know it 's the way we were taught racism in school and elementary school is a thing in the past, yeah, you know, oh, that it was, was Jim crow, but it 's over now um, the way that we're taught uh the even the way that we remember nine eleven like oh, it happened and now you know and it's it's this constant and I, and I called the piece ever again because you know, mm. rather than never again it's it keeps happening and um
0: i i don't know who coined this term but for some reason it's popping into my head but like the tyranny of the present moment
3: oh yeah I, very much so yeah
0: you look that up
3: People, it, it it well and, and that's another uh, yeah it goes back to the the same book that i was talking about earlier that the We've we've created this huge gallery of the past based on all these isolated images, and we do this in our social media accounts as well. We have all of our perfectly curated moments mm. of the past on Facebook and now Instagram, and on other social media we also post things like um, you know Tumblr or Pinterest. We post our future, which is all these aspirational mm-hmm. isolated images. Um, This is the kind of, you know, people do this all the time with vision boards. This is where I want to live. This is who I want to be. This is what I want to do. And between these two massive uh, massive libraries of images, the present is being squeezed and squeezed and squeezed into this ever smaller, more immediate blip of time. Mm -hmm. That also feels like it's the only time. So it's this weird, you know, Duality, almost, like yeah. agor- agoraphobia and claustrophobia, at the same time. Yeah, and lo and behold, it makes people anxious. Yeah.
0: Patrick, I'm so happy you joined us today. This is a fantastic conversation. Thank you for being on.
3: No, thank you for having me on here. I really appreciate it.
1: I'm Shannon Egan, I'm a Bookswell contributor, and I'm here to give you a rundown of some of the events we're most excited about in the first two weeks of April. April is going to be a huge month in the LA literary scene. The Los Angeles Times Festival of Books will be held at USC April 13th and 14th, and that's your chance to engage with authors at readings and panels, as well as publishers, presses, and other literary orgs, including us, at outdoor booths. We're really excited that previous Books Featured author and Future Intersections podcast guest, Linnell George, will be on a panel discussing Los Angeles, the people and places that shaped a city. She'll be alongside Lily Analik, Tosh Berman, and David Kippen. That's Saturday morning at 10 a.m. If you're planning to stick around campus through lunchtime, you can attend a conversation between Tommy Orange and Natasha Dayon. Tommy Orange's impressive debut, There, There, which reached number eight on the New York Times bestseller list, follows 12 Native American characters living in Oakland, California. Natasha Dayon is an NAACP Image Award nominee, whose novel, Grace, won the 2017 American Library Association's Black Caucus Award for debut fiction. And finally, at the Festival of Books, our featured author for March, Leila Lalami, We'll discuss her highly acclaimed new release, The Other Americans, alongside Pulitzer Prize finalist, Luis Alberto Uria. That's only a minuscule snapshot of all the incredible events that will be part of the LA Times Festival of Books, but we think you should make these authors a priority. April is also National Poetry Month, which means you definitely shouldn't miss the L.A. Poetry Society and Tia Chucha Press gathering together for a reading on April 3rd at 7 p.m. That will be held at the L.A. Plaza de Cultura y Artes. They'll be featuring authors from Tia Chucha's anthology, The Coiled Serpent, which highlighted diverse local L.A. poets. Finally, I just wanted to shout out an event at Chevalier's with author Stephen Rowley discussing his novel The Editor with Taylor Jenkins Reid. Sarah Labrie mentioned Taylor Jenkins Reid's latest runaway hit, Daisy Jones and the Six, at the top of this episode. The editor falls an author who thinks he's found his big break when his autobiographical novel gets acquired by a major publishing house, with none other than Jackie O attached as his editor. His last book, Lily and the Octopus, was a major success, and the premise of the editor reminds me of another Taylor Jenkins Reid phenomenon, The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. This should be a wonderful conversation with two really talented fiction authors. Again, that's at Chevalier's on April 2nd at 7pm. As always, you can get more details on these events and more on our Bookswell website and by following us on social media, at Bookswell Club.
0: browse upcoming events, sign up for our newsletter, or locate our Patreon donations page, visit us at www.bookswell.club